Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, the day of each week that we read back some messages from the mailbag. By the way, if you have never gotten in touch with us before, uh, but maybe you've always wanted to, why not give it a try? You can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. We accept all kinds of messages, uh, feedback, thoughts on recent episodes, uh, anything interesting you want to add to a topic we've recently talked about. If you want to suggest a topic for the future, if you have questions, corrections, any of the above, uh, send them on in. Yeah. I mean, you might think, well, my name's Jim and I don't know if they need any more gems. Don't <laughs> let that stop you. We can always use more gems. Yeah. Our army of gems grows, uh, grows ever mightier. Let's see, Rob, do you want to kick things off today by reading this message about minimal group paradigm, not from Jim, but from Tim? Ah, all right, let's do it. Uh, Tim writes, hi, Stuff to Blow Your Mind team. Obligatory mention that you guys are doing an amazing job because, well, you are. Thanks, Tim. Well, thank you, Tim. Tim continues, the recent episode about the minimum requirements for an in-group, out-group bias to take form took me back to many years of going to and then helping run church youth camps. Oh, boy. <laughs> Campers would be divided into teams arbitrarily for many games. It always resulted in stiff competition and um, and dogged tribalism uh, if the groups weren't mixed up every few games. This makes me wonder if the in-group preference, etc., cetera, uh, is stronger at different stages of life. Maybe hormonal teens would show the effect more strongly with a tapering off in midlife, then more negative associations coming up again with the traditionally uh, stuffy old man yelling at kids to get off their lawn. But old Uncle John probably just had a bad temper because of arthritis, not an in-out group 
uh, mentality against the local scooter gang. Anyway, thanks for stimulating some thought and a touch of nostalgia. Keep up the good work. Regards, Tim. Tim, this is a great point. I have no direct evidence to this effect, uh, at least not any, you know, in, in from scientific journals. But based on life experience, I would strongly suspect that the the in-group, out-group, uh, rapid-forming paradigms would be, that effect would be strongest among teenagers. I don't know exactly why, but that feels true. Highly social creatures. I mean, I know we've in the past on the show, it's probably been a long time, we've touched on some of the research about the teenage brain and why the teenage brain is different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why uh, things of social value have different weight in the, in the, in the, in the teenage brain. So, um, yeah, that's the kind of research we might, might have to come back to at some point. I guess we'll come back to it eventually because when my son becomes a teenager and I have to make sense of it all uh, all, all over again. Yeah, uh, teenage homo sapiens uh, are, they're like socialization machines. They're, you know, that's uh, where you're trying to find your place in the world. And your place in the world means a number of things, like finding what you're good at and so forth. But maybe the most important of all those uh, categories of place finding is social place. What group Mm -hmm. do you fit in with? Yeah, do I have a star on my belly? Do I not? Uh, Do I have a blue (laughs) check mark? Do I not? Uh, we're going to watch some of this play out in real time. All right. Are you ready for some responses to our episodes on childhood amnesia? Let's have it. Uh, just to note, we have gotten a lot of feedback to the series. Uh, so we're we're trying to read through as many of them as we can, but there is a backlog. Uh, so there are still a bunch we, we won't get to today, but we will try to keep reading them uh, as the weeks go on. So this first message comes from Joseph. Hey guys, I'm playing a bit of catch-up lately and just listened to your first episode on memory. I found the episode fascinating since I have virtually zero memories of my childhood. Nothing at all springs to mind from zero to six, I guess ages zero to six, and I've spent an hour or so trying to think of something. I was talking with my wife and she easily rattled off a dozen memories of preschool and kindergarten and that seems like the normal experience. I'm often aware of some differences in the way I think and the way my brain works, but your podcast was really a very striking episode to me as I'd never really considered how unique my experience might be. I was six when the first thing that I can remember happened. I distinctly remember being in the office of my father's business, finding everything to be much too loud and removing my hearing aid to place it on the nearby countertop. I contracted bacterial meningitis when I was just a few weeks old and was stricken deaf by the disease, not an unusual consequence. What is unusual is that over time, my hearing completely restored, and now I hear with 100% acuity. This is the first moment I remember being able to hear, and also the first moment I remember at all. I did some research, and there are some really fascinating angles in the development of autobiographical memory in deaf children as well as neurodivergent children. I'm neurodiverse, but not on the autism spectrum. Maybe you talked about this in your second episode, so apologies if it's redundant, but I found it all very interesting, although not particularly satisfying as an explanation of my unique experience of autobiographical memory. Uh, And then Joseph here includes a couple of links to scientific papers. So uh, I I took a look and they were both pretty interesting. So I dug up the citations and added summaries. So the first one 
is a paper by Tiffany West Weigel and Patricia Bauer, published in the journal Memory in the year 2000. Uh, the title of the paper is Deaf and Hearing Adults' Recollections of Childhood and Beyond. So uh, this one investigated one of the ideas we discussed in the series, the possibility that the horizon of earliest memories may be influenced by differences in narrative socialization, sort of the, the culture of autobiographical storytelling that the child grows up within. So if early formation of lasting memories is to some degree dependent on exposure to adult patterns of storytelling for events, then you would expect children who have later acquisition of language itself to have later earliest memories. So the authors write, quote, In the present research, we tested the hypothesis that by virtue of later exposure to language, individuals born deaf to hearing parents will have earliest memories from later in life relative to hearing individuals. And what did they find? Actually, the hypothesis was not supported. The age of earliest memory did not vary between deaf children and children with typical hearing. However, there were some interesting differences. So the core hypothesis was falsified, but there were differences observed. They write, quote, Nevertheless, adults who are deaf were found to have less dense representations of early autobiographical memories and to include in their narrative reports fewer categories of information, including visual spatial information relative to hearing adults. Uh, so I thought that was re really interesting. In this study, at least, children with less early exposure to language-based narrative by virtue of the fact that they were uh, deaf children born to hearing adults don't seem to have a different, uh, a temporally different horizon of earliest memory but their very earliest memories do seem to have less elaborative detail in the words of uh, some of the stuff we were looking at in, in the series. So, And that includes details that would not be affected by deafness itself. Hmm. So at least on the surface, this is... <laughs> interesting but frustrating, right? Like it would appear to provide some evidence both for and against the role of language and narrative culture in establishing capabilities for early memory. Uh, there's some relationship between these variables in the study apparent in those differences in like the detail density, but the average age of the earliest memories were not significantly different. Now, the second study that Joseph uh, linked uh, was about the earliest memories of people on the autism spectrum. This was by uh, Zamoshik et al., Vera Zamoshik et al., published in the journal Frontiers in Psychiatry in 2016, called Earliest Memories of Individuals on the Autism Spectrum Assessed Using Online Self-Reports. Uh, and I was going to just read from the abstract here, but I, I found that it, it relies on a specialized concept uh, that the authors call, quote, no events, K-N-O-W, no events versus remember events. So I'm uh, pulling a section from later in the paper to define that difference first. The authors write, quote, when participants knew that an event occurred, uh, meaning in their lives, but could not relive any details relating to it, these events are referred to as no events. These events are based on external sources such as photographs or stories told by friends and family. In their description of the no events, participants had to indicate the source of their memory. Remember events are memories that are pure personal recollections specific to time and place. These events could be relived by the participant and relied on no other sources. 
So with that in mind, uh, the paper begins by observing conflicting accounts in the literature. They say, on the one hand, quote, autobiographical accounts by people with autism reveal vivid memories of early childhood. And yet at the same time, they say that a lot of previous experiments have found that uh, people with autism, quote, have deficits in personal autobiographic memory compared to people without autism. So uh, to read from the abstract here, quote, to assess this contradiction empirically, we implemented an online questionnaire on early childhood events to compare people on the autism spectrum and non-autistic people with respect to their earliest autobiographical episodic memories and the earliest semantic no event as told by another person. Results indicate that people on the autism spectrum do not differ from non-autistic people in the age of their earliest no events, but they remember events from an earlier age in childhood and with more sensory details, contradicting the assumption of an overall deficit in personal episodic memory in autism. Furthermore, our results emphasize the supporting influence of language for memory formation and give evidence for an important role of sensory features in memories of people on the autism spectrum. Uh, so I, I don't know quite what to make of that, but I find it interesting that you have these studies that have come to completely opposite uh, conclusions and results on that, whether uh, people on the autism spectrum compared to people not on the spectrum tend to have uh, uh, deficits in early childhood autobiographical memory or have richer, more detailed memories, as this study seems to find. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. this is a, a whole whole angle I, I didn't even think about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, huge thanks to Joseph for the, for a fascinating email. Uh, now, we also asked people about their own earliest childhood memories, and especially if anybody had memories that they believed were genuine from before the the normal threshold of earliest memories uh, th that is typically found of around, you know, uh, w with some uh, variations, three years old or three and a half years old. Some people wrote uh, having apparently much older memories, or at least so they believed, and one of them was Matt. Yeah, Matt writes in and says, hey, guys, I was just listening to the first couple of your Before You Could Remember episodes and decided I would relay my earliest memories, which, should it be true, may be the earliest you are likely to come across. Before I do, I just want to be clear that I will not be offended if you should question any part of this memory and relate it to anything from, uh, from modified memories or even wholly false memories. Anyways... On to my memory. I remember visiting the doctor in my early life, and during that visit, the doctor took out a glasses case and took out a ballpoint pen, places it against my heel, and clicked it to draw blood, and then pressed an index card against my bloody heel to leave an imprint on several points along the card. For further context, I first related this memory to my mother when I was a teen, and she pointed out the similarities to how the newborn blood spot test is performed, which should this be a true memory, would have happened when I was approximately one week old. But uh, anyway, for a bit more insight and possible discussion, the specific details that are most vivid in this memory are, and then we have a list here, first, the ballpoint pen being one of those generic white pens you might find at a bank or insurance office with the company name printed on the side. Secondly, the characteristic lines of the standard 3x5 index card. Then the light pink color of the walls in the room. And then finally, a plant in the corner of the room with fern-like leaves. 
And Matt notes, not all of these are relevant to the retelling of the story, but that's how they sit in my memory banks. You can probably already see how some of these details don't quite fit with what uh, would have been the literal reality of the situation believed to be the source of this memory, but hopefully you can also see how they might be connected via more common substitutes with similar-looking objects. Also, to be clear, I did not concisely know of this test before relating the memory, nor was I uh, led into it in any way that I recall beyond talking about our earliest memories in general. Anyways, did you know that the first official high five only occurred in 1977 during a Dodgers game? <laughs> Love what you are doing, and thanks for the stimulating audio to help me with my long commute to work every day. Matt. Very interesting, Matt. Uh, I, I I bet you're going to have people who challenge you on the, on the 1977 Dodgers thing. Uh, <laughs> your your own personal first autobiographical memory. I don't know. That's harder to fight people on. As as we raise in each of the issue uh, e- uh, episodes where we cover these uh, emails, there are some reasons to be skeptical or critical about what we believe to be our earliest memories. Not because people would be intentionally misrepresenting or anything, but just because of the many ways that we know uh, information that we get from external sources can come to feel like genuine firsthand memories to us, and and we can't actually tell the difference. But this is very interesting because uh, here you're at least sort of like relaying a sense memory that you wouldn't have had, at least you believe, informational context to make sense of. Like you wouldn't have known why you would have a memory of a ballpoint pen and a card, but there actually uh, was a medical test that would resemble these these types of objects. It actually reminds me of uh, of a very early childhood memory that I have, and I've never even inquired with my mom like when this would be from. But I know that it has some falsification in it or some com- combinations uh, going on here because in it, I, I, in this memory, I was taken to the doctor. I think it's just like a checkup or something as a, as a small child. And my doctor was clearly Gene Shalit, um, the, the movie critic. Um, now, I, I'm, Gene Shalit was, was in no way my actual doctor. But what I suspect is Are you that sure? I saw, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but I suspect that my doctor maybe looked faintly like Gene Shalit, and I would have seen Gene Shalit on the television at some point, and it just became Gene Shalit in my memory, in this, you know, this very faint childhood memory. I see. So Gene Shalit to your actual doctor is similar to the relationship between Matt's idea of a ballpoint pen versus the like sticker object that would be used to, to uh, pierce the skin for a blood test. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I I, I find these uh, these exercises interesting. Uh, so I, I really really appreciated this, Matt. Uh, you know, providing us these these details to sort of like uh, pick apart a little bit as best you know as, as best we can do, uh, knowing what we do about about memory and and how it works. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. 
Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This next email from Selena was really valuable because this brings with it some professional expertise. All right. A note, uh, there are just a, a few edits for length in here. But Selena writes, with regards to infantile amnesia, similar to the hippocampal learning theory, developing a language seems to be at least one factor for when a person develops the skill of recalling and describing past events. Dr. Francesca Daly Espinoza has given several uh, presentations that relate to this. She has mentioned that in her work with deaf children, if she taught them sign language, it improved their ability to recall information. Paraphrasing, and hopefully not totally off-base in my summary, she hypothesizes that pre-language children have not yet developed a self-echoic verbal skill, i.e. our inside voice or self-talk, which is why they recall much less and less accurately than children who have learned a language. 
In various experiments, she's found that uh, disrupting the self-echoic in children who have developed a language affects recall accuracy, e.g. trying to learn or remember a phone number while someone is saying random numbers out loud because it prevents you from, quote, hearing your self-echoic repetition of the phone number you're trying to remember. When working on recalling events, she has used a phrase to describe how to teach children to recall or to improve their uh, recall by ensuring that they are, quote, verbally present at the time the event is occurring. The adult describes what is happening in the present moment and prompts the child to describe what is happening and or answer who, what, when, where type questions about what is happening in the present moment to ensure they are verbally present. This helps increase the salience of what is happening and improves delayed recall. Oh, that's very interesting. I'd, I'd almost want to try that out. So, like, under this idea, recall of information learned in a setting would be better if during that setting you you ask children, like, where are you right now? What are we doing? Uh, so that they, you know, have a kind of, yeah, have that, like, verbal awareness of their immediate situation. Anyway, uh, Selena goes on to say, anecdotally, in my work with children as a behavior analyst, the point at which autistic children who are language delayed can recall events is strongly correlated with the development of the verbal prerequisites mentioned by Dr. Espinoza. The information she presented was in the context of a uh, presentation at Penn State Conferences for Applied Behavior Analysis, uh, uh, which is the acronym is ABA, slash verbal behavior. Uh, Selena gives some caveats about how she can't uh, dig up uh, specific references at the moment. Totally understand, Selena. Uh, she goes on to say, uh, language development can happen at different times for kids slash people with different learning histories. If the hippocampal theory supposes recall occurs after the hippocampus develops sufficiently, then in theory, adults should be able to recall events regardless of having learned a language. However, in uh, a book called A Journey into the Deaf World by Lane Hoffmeister and Bahan, I believe there are examples provided of deaf people who had no functional form of communication until someone taught them sign language at an adult age. Following the hippocampal theory, the adults should be able to recall events from their pre-language adult lives. However, and sadly, their recall of life before learning a language is largely unremembered, like having infantile amnesia for most of their life until they learned a sign language. What they could recall was extremely vague and more sensory than specific details or events. And then she notes uh, it's been over two decades since she read the book. So recall is fuzzy about whether this was a single case of a deaf person acquiring the sign language as an adult or multiple cases. Uh, but anyway, Selena goes on to say the flip side of this might be what if learning a language is one of the processes that develops the hippocampus, chicken or egg? Regarding the early memories that are forgotten in adolescence, synaptic pruning probably plays a major role. Use it or lose it. With regards to uh, what I can personally recall as my earliest memories, it's mostly from kindergarten, although I have some memories from preschool. For example, in preschool, I used to make wishes on dandelions in the grass during outside uh, play periods. I can still remember three of my wishes. They didn't come true. 
Oh, well. There are other events from my childhood that my parents have described to me, and I don't recall them. For example, I was present when my sister uttered her first words, but I have no personal memory of this event. Appreciate the multi-episode deep dives on topics. Thanks, Selena. Oh, Selena, what a fantastic email. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I love it when... Uh, with when people with direct expertise on something we talk about uh, get in touch to to fill in things like this. Yes, absolutely. This was a good one. Okay, we've got a bunch more messages about uh, our series on on childhood amnesia to get to, but we're going to have to wrap it up there for today and finish off with a couple of weird house messages. We will try to get to more of the uh, the memory responses in future episodes. Now, to kick things off about Weird House Cinema, we got a pronunciation note from our listener, Carrie, in response to the episode on The NeverEnding Story, where we make reference to the other Wolfgang Peterson movie, the 1981 film about a German submarine, and we pronounce the title Das Boot. Carrie informs us that while the German word is spelled B-O-O-T, it is pronounced the same as the English word boat. So it's actually das Boot, meaning the boat. Uh, Carrie, hate to break it to you, but I think literally every English speaker I've ever heard made, make reference to this film said boot. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what explains that. Maybe this is just something we do in the Anglophone world. We uh, kind of like take an incorrect pronunciation and just cement it. So uh, I accept the correction and appreciate it. But on the other hand, I would say it's it's almost just the case that in the English speaking world, the movie is called Das Boot. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like um, that great Japanese horror movie Ringu, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and with uh, with Das Boot or Das Boot, um, you know, Siskel and Ebert said boot, and I guess that, you know, kind of gets stuck in your head. Now, on The Simpsons, it was Das Butt. Um, so I think that was supposed to be, that was supposed to be maybe a knockoff film. Uh, I, I had to look that one up. That was in the episode New Kid on the Block. Uh, that mm -hmm. was a Conan O'Brien uh, scripted episode. Brilliant. Uh, but still, I appreciate the message, Carrie. Thank you. Now, we received uh, some other listener mail regarding the never-ending story episode of Weird House Cinema. And, uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to get to all of those today either. But uh, I wanted to read at least one of them. This one comes to us from Maya. Maya writes in and says, Dear Joe and Rob, The never-ending story. I was that child that from time to time would lock herself up in her room for a whole Sunday and read it cover to cover, almost like an enactment of Bastion's Night in the School Attic. I was 11 when the motion picture was released, and by that time I must have read it 30 times and knew it by heart. I'm afraid to report that I found the movie adaptation loathsome. For me, both the characters and Fantasia, as was translated into Spanish, were more somber, stern, and beautiful and German than anything that was portrayed in the movie. Leaving the ending aside, my favorite chapters were lacking. Zayade and the Seeing Hand Castle, Perilin, the Night Jungle, Miss, uh, and I don't remember how, let's see, I'm not sure how, how this one's pronounced, and I'm, uh, I'm, and I'm a little foggy on this chapter, but Miss Iula and her ever-changing home, come on. <laughs> Anyhow, Thank you for featuring it as one of your Weird House Cinema episodes. Through your eyes, I came to appreciate many features that, as a child, felt like treason. Guess Michael Inda himself must have felt the same way since he hated the movie. By the way, you mentioned that Inda's father was a surrealist painter, and it came to mind one of my favorite Inda's books, The Mirror in the Mirror, 
a surrealist book if ever there was one. I strongly recommend it. All the best, Maya. Oh, thanks, Maya. I don't even know what these references. Zayade and the Seeing Hand Castle, not a clue. Um, yes, I do remember. I remember Zayade for, for sure. Um, and the, the night jungle. Yeah, there are a bunch of additional little adventures and, uh, there, there's some other paradoxes they encounter and so forth. It's, um, it, it's, it's a great read. Uh, again, I highly recommend, um, Michael Linda's The Neverending Story. In a strange way, this feels like a, a parallel universe version of the nerd complaining about how they didn't put Tom Bombadil in the movies. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, the the reading of a book uh, can can be very personal, um, and and I, I do like that this uh, this email also centers in on childhood reading of books, which uh, I've observed this with my own son, um, whose name is also Bastian. Uh, uh, when when he reads a book that he likes, he's very likely to want to read it over and over again. Uh, in ways that uh, adults may not. Um, you know, there are books that I reread, but I, I give them a little time uh, and I'll let my adult brain forget most of them so that I can come back and re-experience it again. But um, there's there's kind of this um, like ritual to it sometimes with, with young readers, I think, where yeah, you just have to read it again and again to experience it again and again. And it has maybe a different weighted reality to the reader. Totally. I have exactly the same pattern. I, when I was a kid, I used to reread books over and over. I sort of stopped doing that as an adult. Uh, there have been a few, uh, but not nearly as many. When I was a kid, if I liked it, I'd read it five times. Yeah. One of the, the gifts of adulthood is that you, get to, you end up forgetting half the stuff that happens <laughs> even in a book you love. And then you're like, oh, man, this book is great. Uh, <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's always the case that, um, you know, kidding aside, you know, a really great book speaks to you differently depending on when you're reading it. Um, and, uh, and you're going to find things that you didn't find the previous time. And, you know, the, I, th- I think in my own experience, there, you know, there, 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 are, few, there are a few books that I, I definitely see this in. Uh, definitely Dune by Frank Herbert. Every time I've read it, it's spoken to me a little differently. And I suspect it's that way with Never Ending Story. I never read it as a child. But um, it has that level of depth to it that I feel like anytime you read it, you're likely to get a different experience. You're going to pick up on different things. There's stuff in there that's very much for the, the child reader. There's stuff in there for the adult. And there's probably stuff that, that you know, is intended to, to speak in, in different ways to those different audiences. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much to everybody who got in touch this week. Uh, as I said, we've got a lot more to, to read, so we will try to uh, tackle more of that next Monday. But for now, uh, I, I think we'll cap it there. That's right. If you want to listen to more listener mail, though, it's every Monday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, a short form monster fact or um, artifact on Wednesdays. And on Friday, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. 
Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.